Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Richard Gay, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and with me is Dr. Joanna Hersey, our Associate Dean. Joining us is Dr. Marianne Jacobs, Professor and Chair in our Department of American Indian Studies. We are looking forward to discussing her new book, Upon Her Shoulders, Southeastern Native Women Share Their Stories of Justice, Spirit, and Community. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Mary Ann, thank you so much for being with us today. Let's start with your telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm Mary Ann Jacobs. I chair American Indian Studies. As you know, I'm from the community. Part of my growing up was here in uh, in North Carolina and part in Chicago where my parents moved from this community in 1952. So I feel very much like this is home for me. Most of my siblings live here all but one. My sister who now lives in Baltimore is down visiting this week. So we've been having um, a lot of get togethers because she's here. Coming home to teach at UNCP was really a good thing for for my family because uh, both my husband and I are from from the community. That's wonderful, Marianne. Could you tell us a little bit about your educational background? I believe you're you're trained as a sociologist. Is that right? Social work, sociology. Social worker. Yeah, I started out um, doing my undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill, and I got a master's degree for school counseling. And then my husband and I got married and we moved to California. And then I started working as an instructor at Cal State Long Beach. And eventually my position was moved into directing the American Indian Studies program there. And that's where I decided to earn a master's degree in social work and then go on and got a PhD in social work at the University of Chicago. So I, I just traipse around the country as most academics do. That is, you know, the way uh, academia is. You kind of go from one thing to the next and um, that's pretty much how my career has happened. Excellent. Well, we know you've made some really valuable contributions here, so I'm really looking forward to learning more about your book. So I know this book comes out of your previous research, so could you tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about your co-editors of this of this compilation? Yeah, Dr. Uderiki Wiesthaus, Chair Beasley, and I, we all served on the American Indian Women of Proud Nations Organizations Organizing Committee. And at different times, we were helping to coordinate their annual conferences. That's how all three of us met. And we decided that it would be great to have books coming out of the conference. And the first book we had, we really conceptualized a book that would have both story and academic portions together. But it turned out that we had more pieces because we had the speakers for the conference write their own work. And that one is American Indian Women of Proud Nations, the name of the organization, Essays on History, Language, and Education. So we had keynote speakers writing their own sections, and that worked out really well for us. So upon her shoulders, we did this follow-up book 
this is more story and storytelling. Some of the people who are in the in the collection did not want to write their own piece. So we went out, uh, Cherry did a lot of this herself and Ulrike did too, went out and interviewed the women who are part of this volume. And then we wrote up those interviews into a readable form. So taking out all the ums and uh, and I just can't remember and that sort of thing. Some of these sections are written by some of our authors, like Christine Hewlin wrote, she has a much longer book and she allowed us to take excerpts from that. But most of these are collected interviews with women in the community. And could you define community for Sarah? Are we talking in the Robeson County or? Well, they were actually not necessarily in Robeson County. Uh, Many of them were somehow related to the American Indian Women of Proud Nations. Uh, Either they were presenters or they were elders in residence or they were important to putting on the conferences. A lot of them have connections to that organization. And the, and the proceeds from this book and the first book have gone to the American Indian Women of Proud Nations organization. So we encourage everyone to go out and buy a copy today. Yeah, <laughs> go out and buy a copy and they will get the check directly from the publisher. So that's very nice. Excellent. Well, I know that storytelling is uh, has a really long and rich tradition among Native populations and and particularly uh, indigenous women. So could you talk a little bit about that for us? Well, there's at least one storyteller who goes around to different communities and that's what she does for a living and she's interviewed in here. There's another one who wrote poetry for the book. Storytelling is, for many, many tribes, there are origin stories, there are stories about different plants and how they were to be used. There were stories about how different formations in the land came to be. There are all sorts of stories and some tribes have specific roles for women in in that tradition and others it's more of a male dominated pastime. Women are the main characters in a lot of that storytelling. So for instance, in a lot of the origin stories, the progenitor is a woman, not a man. Like in the Bible, the man is the main character. And But for many native origin stories, it's a woman mm-hmm. who's the first person, the first human. That's a really important difference mm-hmm. in the way that native people look at themselves and look at you know, their origins. I find that really fascinating and it makes me think of um, matrilineal societies, right? Matrilineal cultures or patriarchal exactly. cultures. Is, does there seem to be a connection between the origin stories and the either matriarchal or patriarchal form of the tribe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is because matrilineal means that you trace all of your family tree, your clan system back through your mother's family's tree. For many of those tribal systems, originally, the woman would determine she was basically the landowner. She was uh, the owner, a quote unquote, of her children. If the marriage dissolved, all of those things go back to defining who you are as a human, who you are within your group through your mother's line. 
Marianne, your book centers these Indigenous women's stories across three broad themes or areas. How did you decide to organize the material that way? And can you share what each area is and and what it represents to you, why you felt it was important to include? Okay, so we could have chosen a lot of different ways to slice and dice these stories, okay? And what we did for the first section we tried to put together those sorts of stories that clung to the idea, what we called make yourself useful child. And that section actually comes from Marianne Elliott's story that's part of the book. And Mary, you all know Marianne Elliott just donated a large sum of money to the McKenzie Elliott School of Nursing. And that theme from her story basically became the first theme for that section of the book. We looked for other stories that would fit into that broadly. We wanted to cover sections within that were related back to the American Indian Women of Proud Nations. Their themes for the American Indian Women of Proud Nations conference were about family, they were about health, community, entrepreneurship, and uh, spirituality. So we were looking for things that were not covered in the first book. That was another way of thinking about it too. So that spirit one really comes through there, definitely wasn't covered in the first book, and we really wanted it to be part of the second book. The second theme is about spirituality. Spirit medicine is what we called that second theme. And there we have a lot more of different ones, like Christine's section is about basically her, her faith is a through line through all of some very rough and bitter relationships that she had. Then another one from Daphne Strickland about being a foster mom to a little boy. And then Kim Pepeus. A story is a much, much more spiritually centered one that talks about not so much a Christian faith, but more of uh, um, looking for guidance from ancestors, looking for looking from within. So the spirituality one, again, it's broad, but it comes back to that theme. And then the last theme, the one that I was looking forward to was on justice, and we called it getting justice when there was none. We wanted to really think about justice in a different way, because in, in that section, we wanted to think about more indigenous forms of responsibility, reciprocity, the sorts of things that we don't really get in our justice system unless you know, they're intentionally looking at um, something that they call circle justice or restorative justice systems. So that's what we were trying to stretch all of those themes to envelop these stories in the poetry. Would you mind elaborating a little bit on some of those forms of justice, like the restorative justice? Could you give us just a little bit of info on that? Okay, let me see if I can find something from that section. I talk about it in the introduction. Traditional Native American justice is rooted in notions of relationship and dialogue rather than adversarial dispute. Harmony and balance rather than proof and guilt and renewal rather than punishment. 
colonization and the resulting historical trauma still haunt our communities. The clash of native and non-native cultures continues. That clash is acutely visible in the American and indigenous views of justice. The American justice system promotes values and practices such as individualism, self-actualization, and state-sponsored revenge and punishment, usually in the form of fines or incarceration. The system's focus on the vilification of the offender. In contrast, indigenous restorative justice views both the offender and the victim as respected members of the community who have valued roles within the group. Part one of this volume describes in detail how those values or roles are taught from childhood onward. In indigenous restorative justice, both the offender and the victim have equal value. The negative behavior of the offender is viewed separately from the perpetrator's core identity, which is not vilified or seen as evil. To restore a violation of communal ethics, both parties and their extended families are brought together with a peacekeeper who works to seek a mutually agreeable outcome. As some scholars have noted, ideally, the goal of the peacekeeper intervention is for all parties to leave feeling that a satisfactory solution has been reached. So yeah, you can see how different they are in terms of restorative justice is a whole different, a whole different way of viewing things, right? Our American justice system is based on the idea that you are the one bad thing that you did, and that's what you're labeled. And you're not really a full person in the American justice system. And so we really wanted to talk about that. It seems a much more uh, holistic approach of thinking of the individual and, and the complexity that we all share, right? right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad I'm glad we took time for you to to share that with us. Now, you uh, mentioned there uh, a second ago that the book contains some poetry. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could maybe share with us an excerpt of a favorite passage that you have from the book. Okay, so Gail Simmons Cushing, who is Saponi, wrote a poem, and it was featured in one of the American Indian Women of Proud Nations booklets from one of our conferences. So we went out to the family. Gail has passed on, and we went to the family members and asked them for permission to republish in the book. So the title of the book is taken from this poem, and I just wanted to read a little bit of it. Came Soap, Sweat. Jergens lotion on Sunday morning, these are the scents of our women. These images can be heard, felt, seen, smelled, or tasted in the communities where our Indian women live. She is a farmer, a teacher, a mother, a factory worker, a secretary, a professional. Her hair is tinted, it's gray, short, long. She wears house coats or breeches. Sunday dresses, power suits. Her face is made more beautiful with cosmetics. Her face is bare. Her skin is soft. Her skin is leathered and weathered by years of struggle and tiny, tiny character lines frame her eyes. She smells like French perfume. She smells like Mother Earth. The responsibility of being native woman was placed upon her shoulders at her birth, blanketed like a patchwork quilt around her body. 
the last generation and the one before that hover around her, protecting her from bad spirits, the next generation and the one after that, wait eagerly for her to share the woman's secret of creation. So that's just a section of that poem and it's much longer. It's called Patchwork Images. It's really beautiful. It's, I think I experienced some of those smells and the imagery was so vivid. It was, it was really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Now, Marianne, how many years have you taught at UNC Pembroke? Um, this is my 15th year. Uh, I came in 2007. Excellent. So you do so much work with our students. Can you share how you incorporate some of these lessons that this book is telling with these poems and the stories? How do you work on these ideas of storytelling and archiving with the students that you're teaching here at UNCP? I've done it in several different ways. Uh, first, when I taught Lumbee history and culture, I used to have a requirement that they go to a family member and do an interview. Well, that's getting a little bit harder to do because a lot of my students are not members of the Native American community. So I've always had to find people in the community that would be willing to be interviewed. So that's one way that I've been able to do it. So they go and they do an interview. And, you know, in the before times, you could go and ask and either call up or you could actually go visit with, which is what I strongly encourage them to go into a Native person's home and actually do the interview that way. I set up a, a series of questions that they had to ask. So they would go into the person's home and many of them, that would be the first time they'd ever stepped foot in the Native American person's home. They would come back and report, oh, we had such a good time, or they tried to feed me the whole time I was there, uh, something like that. That was always fun. Even for the Native students, that's usually the first time they actually talk to them about this elders person in their lives, how they're growing up during segregation. That was a really important assignment for them. Um, now I do that much more through them having to go through archival material. And I do that either through video or through archives of oral interviews that have actually transcripts where they read, they can either put together a bunch of transcripts and do their, their paper on that, or they can actually watch uh, several videos that are also transcribed and do their paper on that. They're learning about different experiences within the community in that way. And that's a much easier way to do an online course and have everybody have access to the same materials through archival interviews with Lumbee people. I've also worked with Dr. Jamie Mize, who heads the REACH program, 
they did interviews or they were advertising for interviews with people in the community. And I think they were collecting all races of people who grew up during segregation and trying to hear from them about their experiences going through um, living in you know, basically segregated communities and going to segregated schools. That was another thing. I think that's a really important time, especially for our college students to hear about because they don't have the opportunity to to always know that that was something that's pretty recent in American history and that people are still walking around, you know, in their everyday lives and they've experienced that history directly. So um, I think it's really important for our college students, our, all of our students to know about that period in our history and how it made people feel, especially about each other. That's really important. And, and that we're still living with it today. That, and that like, we're still is, living with that, the effects of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, to me, it seems in some ways that your book is a model of that, right? Because you've did uh, collected oral histories and shared those. Uh, yeah. As well, so you're not just talking the talk; you're walking the walk, right? You're doing, doing. Yeah. yeah, and what you just said, Richard, reminded me another portion of the book with Rosa Winfrey. It's her interview portion that was collected by Yoriki Wiesthouse. I wanted to read this little Good. section of it because it's so powerful. She says, "I've traveled a long path, and on that path, I learned how to overcome prejudices." She's talking about her own prejudices. People who would say that they don't have any prejudices, I just think they're wrong. I had prejudices and I learned how to work through them. Good people from the Caucasian race helped me do that. Education does not mean that you get it all within the space of four walls. Living in a white community was so strange to me. I learned how to interact with people who were not from my own tribe, people other than relatives living in my home community. The only real contact that I had growing up was the fact that I worked in a local general store run by Mr. Russell W. Livermore. I worked four years in the dress shop. I learned a lot there because almost all of my customers were Indian. I worked with two white ladies at the store and I guess I also learned my prejudices in that setting. I was often hurt by my coworkers remarks. They laughed at Indian people, especially Indian people who were not educated. It was just so hard to listen to those things, but I knew I had to work. So I just listened and tried to be as loving and as kind as I could to the people I served. That said, they were mostly Indian people. I also learned from our elders in the different communities around where I lived, one mile north of Pembroke. Until my time at Livermore's, I had not interacted with too many people except my relatives from other communities in Robinson County. So I learned a lot about our people just by working in that store. I was humbled. The elders talked a lot about their struggles as Indian people. They would say to me very open and honestly, I learned to love them. I held them in high esteem. Many of them would come to the store to bring items from home and trade them for food or clothing. The Livermores allowed them to do that. I thought that was very good and an honorable thing that they permitted people to bring items and exchange them for the food they did not have. And she goes on, and it's just a really, really sweet story about growing up, but about also 
becoming a professional and how she learned from um, working in white schools, working in African-American schools and the, the professional people that she worked with in those settings. So they're all really wonderful stories, personal stories about growing up, most of them, and then going to work. And just from the excerpts that you've uh, you've shared with us, I think it's really clear that there's there's a they're very personal, but they're in there's some, there's some universal themes in there. Exactly. And also, and also it shows that learning is a process that takes place over time. It's not just the few years that you're at a university. It's a lifetime of experience. Yeah. And and uh, I think it's clear from the excerpts that there's stuff in your book for all of us to learn from, right? So we're all going to gonna benefit from um, the wisdom in these stories and take away from them uh, what we perhaps need to, to hear at, at this time in our lives. So uh, I'm really glad that you shared that excerpt with us there. That was a great choice. And your role as an educator, you know, has informed your your book in in many ways. And at the end of the the book, you have suggested reflection questions for the reader. And I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of that uh, in in your book and your thought process of sharing this this information with your audience. The way we imagined the book um, was a little different from the way it actually turned out. We actually imagined a a book that you could actually write in and write answers to your reflection questions. And the publishers came up with the format of the book the way it is because it's um, a little tiny volume and about the size of my hand. It fits very nicely into your pocketbook. You can take it to the beach or into a pocket. They said this is about the size that people like. So the reflection questions that we have at the end, now they're basically you can or you or you don't have to. But we want to get people thinking, how do these apply to their own lives? That's what the reflection questions are about. We're definitely not forcing you, but we're hoping that this makes a good leap into other conversations and that people start having the kind of conversations about their own family members that they would sit down and have discussions about these sort of things with their own families. And so that's why the discussion questions are there. We really wanted people to reflect on uh, their own experiences and basically take a leap from the stories and the poetry here to think about themselves. Yeah, it's that lifelong learning I was referring to. Yeah, exactly. Marianne, you know my background is in the arts, and I couldn't help but notice your book has a really beautiful cover. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about that cover, please? Well, we were surprised. We uh, had a different cover in mind, but we couldn't lay hands on a good photograph of the other artwork that we had in mind. And they reached out to Jessica Clark who is becoming a really well-known artist in North Carolina. Her work is being featured in at Duke. I think they bought a couple of her pieces at uh, the Nasher Museum in, in Duke, and um, she's had different showings. And so this is one of her patchwork drawings. She's sort of gotten into this patchwork, the pine cone, actually, instead of using fabric, 
um, she's basically extending the view, enlarging the view of the bottom of a pine cone. And you can see she's painted it different colors on the cover. And so you see one rising and one setting. It looks like almost a sun on the cover. So um, it's really beautiful. And we were just really happy with the way it turned out. Yeah, I think it's very beautiful. And I would, I'd like to add that uh, Jessica is a UNCP graduate. She was one of yes. the first students I taught when I came in 2004. Oh, and wonderful. I've really enjoyed seeing her, her career blossom. She's very talented. And her portraits of um, her relatives are just really, really beautiful. And uh, I hope everyone gets a chance to see them. Well, Marian, thank you so much for sh talking to us today about your book. I was very excited because I was gifted a copy of your book by some colleagues in the office uh, oh, wow. not too long ago. Yeah, so I was, it was a, an honor to receive that. I uh, really have appreciated our conversation today, and um, I hope folks will uh, buy a copy of your book and know the proceeds go to an, an important organization. Yep. And I look forward to other conversations that we'll have in the future about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast was edited and transcribed by Joanna Hersey, and our theme music was composed by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves!